The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. All right. Um, <laughs> the packet that is in front of you is uh, hopefully uh, going to be our, our time tonight where we are going through this gospel tract called Two Ways to Live. Uh, just as a reminder to you, I'm, I'm, you'll hear me say this quite a bit, but we're going to continue to remind you on Wednesdays and Sundays until you get sick of it, and then we're going to keep going. Uh, but basically, uh, we want to give a, a, basically a tool to, for you to be able to put in the hands of people that you meet that can serve as an invitation to church. It's got a little sticker on the back that has that uh, information for our worship times, a little place to put your name you want to write your name down on that uh, so that if you do give it to somebody, it's already got your name on there. You don't have to put your name if you don't want to, or you can even put your cell phone number if you know this person closely or something like that. Uh, you certainly do that, but it's, it can form an invitation, but it can also be a way for you to walk through the gospel with somebody. Uh, if you'll notice the sticker on there for probably most of them, I think probably we've gone through all the old ones, but most of the new ones should have emmanueltuscaloosa.org slash two ways on the back. So if they go to that website, they're going to find this teaching um, through all six sessions in, in there. Uh, there should be six, and then we may do a summary or something. I haven't decided, but, um, but essentially they'll be able to find that there. So if they want to go uh, basically take week by week and go through the panel themselves at home, they can do that. And so you can instruct them to do that. And like I said, we do have them in several different languages. So in the event that you are around international students, Anybody at TIFF or anything like that, you, you might have one that's in your uh, language that you can do. We got the only two languages that are available on the website that we can actually order that are like professionally printed like that, Spanish and Chinese. But um, we can typically, potentially do some that are pretty decent translations, I think, uh, that we can print ourselves. You just need to know what those translations are that you need so we can, we can attempt to get those. Um, so just let us know. But... We've been making our way panel by panel through this track in just a way of helping you understand it and really be able to think about it and then actually talk about some approaches, uh, not only what the panel means and when it says what it says, but also talk about maybe some approaches and ways that you might talk about uh, the different panels with people that you have conversations with. Um, sometimes you're able to just say, hey, it's 30 seconds, and you just got to say, here's a 30-second gospel presentation, but other times it might be people that come to your house or people that are, you're talking with for a prolonged period of time, and they're going to have questions that you need to answer or that they're going to want answers for, and so hopefully this time on Wednesday night is equipping you with being able to maybe think through some of those questions that they might ask. So last week we dealt with uh, the third panel, which is the fact that our sin has brought us under just condemnation. That because of our, of our sin, because God is just, He has a right to hold us to account for our sin. And that it would be unjust for Him not to punish all those who have sinned. Which includes us, it includes everybody in the world. And so a couple of things that we talked about last week was that our sin has obviously ruined the world that God gave us to rule. He put us uh, over as emissaries, as representatives of Him on this earth, and He gave us a strict command that we were to represent His glory. And if we fail in doing that, 
then he has every right to say, I have no need of you any longer, right? And wipe us off the face of the earth. That's, that's his right and his privilege as creator. And, but it goes a step beyond that to say that not only can he do that, but as a God who is just, if he is going to be just, he has to do that. There's a requirement that he actually deal with this particular issue of sin. He has a, uh, he, he, in order to be righteous, he has to do that. So um, he has instituted basically a death penalty, to not put too fine a point on it. The death penalty is a result of sin. Not a particular sin you committed, not, well, you lied to your mom, and so because you stole that candy bar from Walmart, you know, now God is going to kill you, but that death in general across this world, death is a product of sin and the fact that sin is in the world. That's why death is here. And so that is God's first step, and it's a, a precursor to God dealing with sin in the long run. Okay, is, is that. And so the reality of death then, as we see people die, as we go to funerals and things like that, the reality of death should awaken us to God's judgment on a world that is in rebellion to Him. So as we see the casket in front of us, as we you know, think about death in general and the fact that we have to attend funerals and things like that, um, those kinds of things should awaken us to the reality that this is not normal. This is a consequence. This feels very uh, consequential to something that has happened before. And so God created life is the basic premise. He created life that's His life that you have. And because you've run off in rebellion, in sin, mankind anyway, His response is to take that life back. It's my life, not yours. So one objection that you'll frequently find raised against the Christian gospel is that if God is good and all-powerful, why are there injustices in the world? And we spent a little bit of time, or I did, a little bit of time last week on this. Uh, it's a good question, and it is a question, to be honest with you, basically anybody you share the gospel with has this question bouncing around in there somewhere. It may not ever come out, you may never hear them ask it, but it's in there. And it might come out in different forms, but it, it's basically this. When it comes down to it, they want to know, why are there injustices? Why is there evil in the world if you're telling me about a God who is both good and powerful? So if He's all good and He is all powerful, then He should be doing something about this. And the Bible tells us that death, the death of mankind, is the beginning of God dealing with all of the evil and injustices in the world. Um, so, as a, as a response, that's not a full answer to the problem of evil. That's not. That, it, I'm just barely touching the hem of the garment here, but um, there's so much more that can be said, should be said, and we can talk about it another time, but uh, it, is, it is certainly an important question to ask, but this is the beginning of understanding. What is God doing? Death is proof that He is doing something about it. Okay, so what we ended last week was, look, God, if God is just then he has to do something about sin. And so he not only has every right to kill us, he should, because he's just. But this week is where things begin to turn. Because what we find in the gospel message is that 
there is another option for God to be able to deal with this and maintain His justice. And that's what is at stake. And this is why the cross of Christ is so tremendously important for us to understand and for us to spend our time on. Um, I, I started to notice, I guess toward the end of Samuel, I started to think about this a lot, was pretty much the content of my preaching since I'd been here had been largely narrative preaching. Matthew, as an example, it took two and a half years. Uh, Samuel took another, I don't know how long. Uh, but, but it had largely been narrative preaching. And as a result of narrative preaching, we're talking about stories. We're talking about the connection that the story makes to this, that, and the other. And we spent a long time on biblical theology, trying to think about how Genesis connects to Revelation and runs right through the book that we're in, right? And we spent, I spent a long time, for the last six and a half years doing that, and I'm hoping that maybe you notice a, a little bit of a shift in the way that we're going about even preaching and even uh, taking Scripture by Scripture as we go through the book of Hebrews. One of the reasons that I wanted to go through Hebrews is because it, it, for me, in just preaching to uh, a church, it represented a gear shift to really get down to systematic theology. More than really trying to necessarily connect Genesis to Revelation, and it left that altogether, biblical theology, I really wanted to spend a good deal of time on systematic theology and really uh, begin to think deeply about things like the atonement and things that they're, they're hard to think through. It requires, you know, hopefully Sunday by Sunday or even on Wednesday by Wednesday, maybe a little bit of a uh, put, putting your thinking caps on and going, you know, okay, my brain's going to smoke for like 15 minutes as I'm, as I'm thinking about some of these concepts that are sort of, I'm, grabbed, I'm hanging on by my fingertips maybe a little bit sometimes. And, and that's okay. And I wanted to do that because I think it, it, it will represent eventually a growth point for us as a church, just as we begin to really think deeply about what Jesus actually did on the cross. There's no more important thing that you could talk about with your friends or that you could think about yourself and understand is what Jesus has done and the impact that that has brought to us as Christians, and what that really means for us. There's, there's no, nothing better that we could spend our time on. And so we're going we're gonna to be doing that for plenty of years to come, but also that's where we're at tonight. And so some of it is going to require us think pretty deeply tonight about uh, what we're saying to people, and what we're presenting to them, and what the good news really is in Jesus' death. But First, we have to remember some of the basics as we're presenting this to our friends is that God chose to save man from sin through Jesus Christ, His Son. We said He had every right to kill us, and He should kill us, but He went about it a different way. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. So the entire Bible, this is part of the reason why the first six and a half years I've been spending kind of trying to connect Genesis to Revelation to help us see the Bible as a picture, as a big story, um, the whole Bible is written toward that end to help us understand and set up Jesus coming into the world. Everything from Adam all the way through Revelation is helping us understand better uh, Christ. And so the Bible's not only meant to tell us why we deserve judgment, 
but to present this good news that salvation can be had in Christ alone. This works against what everyone is wanting to believe about their, themselves or about salvation, is that it can be had only in Christ alone. I have realized something just now that I left the Scripture passages from last week in this packet. I have, I have bungled things. I think this is the first time I've done that. So I, I, we're going to do this the old-fashioned way. And uh, I'm going to need some of you, if you've got your Bibles and you can reach on that pew back in front of you, to maybe even just look ahead at some of the Scripture passages and just turn there and get your, get your finger ready for that one. Um, and maybe even on the second page too, just kind of mark it so that when I say that passage, somebody can read it out loud, uh, if you don't mind. Um, so I'm going to get 1 Peter 3.18, and uh, I'll read that one out loud for us. Um, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the Spirit. Um, there is only one way in which we might be saved, and that is through Christ alone. While the world is teaching that the good news is that there are many paths to God, and the Oprah theology is meant to kind of tell you, hey, you know, you get eternal life, and you get eternal life, and you get eternal life, and everybody gets eternal life, the reality of the gospel is that salvation comes by Christ alone. And the reason why that's good news is because all of the other methods, quote-unquote, of salvation or pathways to God, if you look at what they're actually telling you, it's self-improvement. All of these are clearing your own mind. All of them are reaching nirvana. All of them are att you attempting to better yourself in order to reach into the beyond, whatever you want to call that, whatever they call that. But the good news of the gospel is that God saved you by His grace and by His mercy. And there is nothing that you can do to earn it. So He reached down and He, he saved. Now, this, believe it or not, this sort of presents a lot of red flags because in this tract, in this very tract, we have already said God is just. Therefore, He has to deal with sin. And now we're saying He saved you by His grace and His mercy. So the person who's paying really close attention, maybe the lawyer that you're presenting the gospel to or something, might say, hey, hang on a minute. Is He just? If He's just, then doesn't He have to... Didn't, didn't, didn't panel number three tell me that He had to do something about this? And now you're telling me what He did was He just... What, did He just sweep it under the rug? Okay, so it tells us God loves the world that He created. This is in the tract, so that's how it states it. God loves the world He created, uh, and He loves us. He didn't leave us to suffer the consequences of our rebellion. He sent His own divine Son into the world to save us. The man, Jesus Christ. Um, so, the, here, this is tremendously important for for people to grasp, first and foremost, before we ever get to the question of his justice, is we have to think about how did we come upon this, and how is it that I could have this 
gift. Um, we have to realize that the reason God chose to save mankind was not because of something found in man, as though we had somehow earned it or had something unique to offer the God of the universe. The reason God chose to save man was found in God alone because of His love. John 3.16 says, anybody want to take a stab at it? I'm sure nobody has it memorized. All right, I heard some mumbles and I think I got most of it together, all right? Uh, so we hear in John 3.16 that God loved the world. He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. So why is it that we come upon this gift of salvation in Christ? Is it because we're good that He loved us? No. It is because He loved us. Well, wait, but why did He love us? Because He loved us. But why? Because He loved us. What, what is difficult to wrap your mind around and we're gonna, this is where we kind of shift gears and start to smoke our brains a little bit for just a second, is the only free being in the universe is God. So, His love is the free choice. The free choice that saves us is not ours, but God's. We have to settle our minds on that before we can adequately tell people about the salvation that can be had in Christ alone and truly tell them it's not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of His own mercy that He saved us. It's not that I loved Him. That's not what love is. John tells us that's not what love is. Love is this. God sent His Son to die for us. That's how God demonstrates His love for us. Because He is truly free. And He can do whatever He wants. He could wipe us off the face of the earth, but how do I know He loves me? Because He sent His Son to die for me. But why does He love me? Because He chose to love me. Period. Now, wrap your mind around that. Um, to complicate the matter further, not only was it not a result of your works, you weren't even His friend when He chose to save you. You were His enemy. Romans 5, 8, and 10. Does anybody want to read that out loud? Yeah, so God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, what 
Paul is saying is that contrary to the idea that God was your friend or you were God's friend and you reached out and you loved Him and He loved you back, that is not the story of the Gospel. The story of the Gospel is that He loved and saved people who were His enemies at enmity with God. Enemies of God. He reached out and saved. So, if, if there's anything that tells you that salvation is from God alone to you, it's that. That salvation came to you while you were enemies of God, not while you were friends of God. Um, but if, as we've already seen, so this is where we start getting a little bit deeper into the weeds here. As we've already seen, if God is just... How can he maintain his justice and forgive his people who have rebelled against him? So if he were to simply forgive his people, that wouldn't be justice in any way. The sin we have committed against him must be paid for. So here's how the tract puts it. It's probably pretty tiny, maybe for some of you, but it's on your packet in front of you, so just read it with me. Unlike us, Jesus didn't rebel against God. He always lived under God's rule, giving honor and thanks to Him, and obeying Him in everything. He didn't deserve God's judgment in any way. He didn't deserve to die. Yet, Jesus did die. Although He had the power of God to heal the sick, and even raise the dead, Jesus allowed Himself to be executed on the Roman cross. The extraordinary news is that Jesus died as a substitute for rebels like us. He took upon Himself the judgment and punishment that we deserved by dying on the cross in our place. Death is the punishment for rebellion, and He died our death. All right. If you presented that to a, anybody you're telling the gospel to, that's great. That's fantastic. They might have more questions. How do we think about the atonement in such a way that we say God is just and the justifier? He still maintains his justice, and yet he adequately dealt with sin. I think as we think about the atoning work of Christ, uh, in several different ways, we can see how all of it, in all of it, God not only maintains His justice, but He adequately deals with sin in a way that both saves us and still enables Him to maintain His just nature. So, here's a couple of, of ways to think about that. In order for Jesus' death to atone for our sins and God still maintain His own justice, several things must be true at once. I've included, I've, I'm talking about three things here, but there's many more that we could talk about, but just for the sake of time. Several things must be true at once. First, Jesus had to live a sinless life. Okay? So, here's the, the reason why that's important, I think, and not just that He lived a sinless life, but that is important, but important as you talk about with people. Uh, the, the narrative that you'll often hear, 
in culture is Jesus was married. There's that one that goes around quite a bit. Uh, to Mary Magdalene, that was a secret, you know, shh, keep it under wraps. And there's lots of these little gospels that popped up in 200 and 300 AD and things like this that kind of sought to tell that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and whatever. And then Dan Brown with the Da Vinci Code and all this. Okay, so there, there's that whole narrative. Um, there is uh, narratives that Jesus was just born, not being born of a virgin. And uh, so all of those seem like, ah, uh, those are deep in the weeds of Christian theology, and I don't even know how to talk about any of that kind of stuff. It's really not deep in the weeds. It's an attack on Jesus living a sinless life. All right? <laughs> that's, that's essentially what's at stake here, is Jesus living a sinless life. And, um, and so he, anytime we talk about his marriage, obviously what, would, what kind of children would he have then? Uh, if he's sinless and perfect, how would that work? Um, so there's that whole thing. Uh, there, there's, if he uh, was, um, uh, what was the other one that I just said? Uh, what, what did I say? Oh, uh, anyway, if there, the, any, any other kind of attempt to kind of paint Jesus in a different light, oh, he was born of a man, he was actually just born of a man and a woman, uh, that, that would obviously also implicate him in terms of sin. So it, it, it's basically calling into question the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life. Well, the reason why that's important is because him living a sinless life is everything for us in the atonement. If he didn't live a sinless life, our sins are not atoned for. All right, Hebrews 4, 15, anybody have that one? Read it real loud, from the depths of your toes. Okay, and then James 1.13, which is not maybe a typical verse you might go to, but does tell us everything we need to know about God himself. Anybody have James 1.13? There you go. Uh, so here is Hebrews 4.15 telling us Jesus himself was tempted every way in, that we are, yet without sin. And then James 1.13 saying, God, can, don't say when you're tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself tempts no one. So he's telling you there that, hey, God is, God is not tempted by sin in any way. And we're, we're in this gospel presentation, we're telling you Jesus is God. Um, so, uh, first we have to understand, in order for Jesus' death to atone for our sins, and yet God still maintains His justice, first, Jesus has to live a sinless life. And to put it more positively, Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. So there's, there's one way of saying it where Jesus avoided sin. There's another way of saying it more positively that Jesus actively, not just passively obeyed God in that He didn't sin, but He actively obeyed God in that He did things that He was supposed to do. Things that were required by law. Remember He tells John the Baptist when He gets into the water of baptism, it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. He goes about all of the commands that God has given to Israel. He goes about as if He is Israel living all of those things perfectly. So he's doing righteously what God requires, and he's not doing what God says is prohibited. So in both the passive and active obedience, 
Jesus accomplishes this for us. And so that means that His righteousness is the currency that He is using to purchase man's salvation. His righteousness essentially forms the currency that he will, with which He will purchase man's salvation. I'm going to read this from Romans 5.19. It says, For as by one man's obedience many were made... Oh, sorry, let me back up. For as by, by, by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Uh, So his righteousness, his righteous living, is going to form the currency to purchase man's salvation. Um, So we know, then, that the penalty of death, as we've talked about before, was a debt owed to God. Our life was given to us, and death is returning the gift of life back to its owner. The life that we were given does not belong to us. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. That's his life that he gave to Adam. And he owns it. So when Adam runs off into sin with the life that God had given him, the death penalty is given to him for the life to come back to its original owner. Um, So Christ's righteousness then was essentially a debt payment which was of greater value than our own lives. So him living a righteous life is accomplishing all of the righteous requirements that God had. And all of the things that we've talked about and talked about on Sunday and at feast and all those kinds of things, those are all true too. That Those were meritorious works. He earned righteousness and therefore was due all of the righteous rewards that God has, has given At the same time, because he lived that righteous life, him giving it up was more than adequate payment for all the lives that God required of his people. Galatians 3.13. Anyone want to read that? Anyone have it? So Christ redeemed us. That redeemed word has kind of financial underpinnings to it. There is a a, a financial idea connected to that, that He redeemed us. He bought us back from our rightful death. His righteous life formed the debt payment that was owed because of our sin. So, So first and foremost, for God to be just and still be able to deal with our sin, we have to understand our sin has put us in debt to God, and Christ's perfectly righteous life has paid that debt. Are we tracking? Does that make sense? Okay. So first and foremost, that's got to be there. Say again? Right. Right. Correct. Sinless. Sinless or righteous, however you want to say that. Sinless might even be a better word. Um, Second, in order for God to maintain His just nature, 
while punishing one person for the sins of another. That's what's at stake here, in case we're just missing that, is God is saying, you, the righteous person, I'm going to punish you for the sins of everybody else. See how that goes over with your children. One sins, turn to the other and say, because he sinned, I'm going to purchase you, I'm going to punish you, and see how that goes over. Everybody will recognize, that's unjust. You can't do that. Right? So, in order for him to maintain his just nature while punishing the one person, Jesus, for the sins of another, me and you, Jesus had to be God. He not only had to live a sinless life, but he also had to be God. We know that from Hebrews 1.3, which we talked about this past week and several other weeks. Uh, John 1.14. Anybody have those two verses? Go ahead, go ahead with the first. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Um, as I said a few weeks ago when we talked about that, there's pretty much no better way that you could say Jesus is God than to say those two phrases in conjunction together. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. There's no better way you could say it, no clearer way that you could say it than that. Uh, John 1, 14. Alright, so here's why that matters. Because imagine you're in a courtroom. And you're standing before the judge. There's a plaintiff and a defendant. And God is the judge, and he's hearing the case of the plaintiff, who is the offended party in this, right? And the offended party says, Lynn stole my bicycle, all right? And, uh, God, and God the judge, or the judge says, okay, the offended party has had their bicycle stolen, and as retribution, Lynn, I want you to give a bicycle to charity. The offended party goes, what? I'm the one that lost the bicycle. The bicycle comes back to me, right? The offended party is still out, correct? So justice would have to be satisfied by satisfying the offended party, correct? So to lay the sin and the penalty for sin on Jesus' shoulders when he didn't earn that sin, when he had no sin, it would seem unjust. However, if Jesus is God, then he is both judge and the offended party. So now justice can be satisfied because the offended party is the one who also issued the verdict. You tracking? So if the judge who issues the verdict and says, give the bicycle to charity, is also the plaintiff in the court case, then it's just, because the plaintiff is the one who determined what the, how the offense should be rectified. You tracking with the justice of God? Um, Alright, so Romans 5.9 
So his blood satisfied all the wrath that God had for us. So this is why it's important that we understand that on the cross, the wrath that God has for you, because He is both judge and plaintiff in this case, the wrath that He has towards you is poured out. It's poured out on Himself. He took the penalty for it. So that means, like what we talked about last week, is that it's finished. It's, it's, it's done. Or I should say Sunday. What we talked about Sunday. It's done. It's finished. The atoning work is accomplished. Why? Because there's nothing left in the cup. The wrath was totally poured out on the shoulders of God. So His wrath is satisfied because He's both judge and plaintiff. Alright, 3, 21 to 26. So, God's wrath toward us as the offended party is satisfied in Jesus. This makes God both the just, maintains His justice, and makes Him the justifier in that He is the one who accomplished this for us. All right? So, Jesus had to, be, had to live a sinless life, or be, uh, live a sinless life, live a righteous life, um, and He also had to be God so that He could be both the just and the justifier. Um, finally, and this is the one that might be a little bit hard for us, okay, so just, uh, God maintains His justice by ordaining that Jesus Christ stand as head and representative of a new creation just as Adam stood as such for old creation. Okay. Pause just a second. We have talked about before, at length, that Adam stood as our representative head. So, Adam sinned. You weren't there. Neither was I. Did you face the consequences for Adam's sin? Yes. Death is here. Death is coming for us. Clearly. So we face the repercussions of Adam's sin even though we weren't there. Adam stands as a representative head for the entire human race. All those born by flesh and blood are going to inherit what Adam had in his corruption. That is death. Right? We all have knowledge of good and evil as we've talked about a couple weeks ago. And so as such we take the fall with Adam. All the human race fell. That's what Paul is basically saying in Romans 5. I read 12 to 14. I got this one. 
Um, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned? I wasn't there. All sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now, there's lots of phrases in there that you go, I don't understand what that means. I don't understand what he's talking about. Okay, let's throw those out, all right? So for just a second, let's focus on just a couple of pivotal phrases here. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So death entered the world through Adam. Death then spread to you because you are Adam's child. So you inherited all of the corruption and death that was true of Adam. All right. So then he says, and it's not even a product of the law. Because, yes, God says don't steal, and you steal, and that's sin. But that's not the kind of sin I'm even talking about. I'm talking about sin that reigned from Adam to Moses. Before the law was even given, people died, right? That's proof that you are in Adam, because you die. Death wasn't always a part of this world. It came as a result of Adam's sin. The fact that you die is a, it means that you were guilty in Adam's sin. That's basically what he's getting at. Now look at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So let's understand just for a second. Adam stands as covenant head, right? So Adam stood as covenant head for all humanity. That means when Adam sinned, all of his children inherited his sin and thus also his condemnation. We are born flesh and blood, and so we are cursed to death by Adam's sin. So we have Ephesians 2, 1-3. Does anybody have that? Okay, so uh, was there one more? And we are all by nature children, right? All right, so what Paul is telling us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, all of mankind dead in their trespasses and sins were by nature, not because of a, an action specifically, but by nature we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, so what happens then in Christ is that, because remember he's standing now as a representative, Christ now stands as the head of a new covenant. So all God's children who fall on the, under the, this new covenant will be made like Him, being made of both flesh and the Spirit of God, like Jesus. So, what did it, did it not go? It didn't go. There it goes. Alright. So let me read it again. Christ now 
stands as head of a new covenant. So, in the history of mankind, there have been two heads of humanity. Alright? One has been Adam, the head of all humanity, all mankind, everyone born of flesh and blood. There is now a second head of, human, of humanity. But these are people not born of flesh and blood. These are poor people born of body and the Spirit of God. Tracking with me so far? How was Jesus conceived? How was He born? What does He say? Mary says to the angel, how can this be? I'm a virgin. Fear not, Mary. We got this covered. The Spirit of God will overpower you. She's going to be born, and the, the child dwelling in your womb will be born of flesh. He'll be, be a man, but he'll also be born of the Spirit of God. So, this sinless child is born, not inheriting the corruption of Adam. So he is, he is like Adam was born out of the dirt and breathed in the breath of life. He's not, he's not inheriting anything except from God. Now Jesus is also, this is the reason why he's a second head, is because he doesn't fall under Adam. He's a totally new kind of creature. One that is body and the Spirit of God. Tracking so far? So he's a new head. Okay. Now, anyone that would be born into new creation has to be... Ah, go to the next slide. That was anticlimactic. There it goes. Anyone who wants to fall under the headship of Christ in the new creation has to be, what's the phrase, born again. How can I be born again? This is the question Nicodemus asked. How can I be born if I've already been born? Do I enter into my mother's womb? And he's like, no, you idiot. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you a, You're a teacher in Israel and you don't understand this? So go to John chapter 3. I think we can all read this one together. I did. Just um, so he says to him in, in 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so Nicodemus says, Do I need to be born of Adam again? This is why Jesus is so frustrated by the question. He'll get frustrated in just a second. And he says, No, you have to be born of water and the Spirit which goes back to Ezekiel 36, which is the talking about the new covenant that, Jesus, that, that God is going to bring where He's going to sprinkle clean water on them. He's going to take His little spray bottle of holiness and 
spray them clean and wash them clean, and then I'm going to put my spirit within you. How is it that I am going to fall under this new covenant head? Because if I die, I go to hell. I can't enter again into my mother's womb. I can't get over there into this other column where new humanity exists under Christ. I can only ever be under Adam. That's why Paul says you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The ruler is now at work in the, in the spirit of darkness. And you're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There is nothing you can do because you're dead to get over to this other column. How can I get over there? You've got to be born of the Spirit. God Himself has to overpower you. Has to make you alive. Has to give you of His Spirit. Otherwise, you don't get over to column B. You stay in column A. The reason your salvation has to be a work of God is because He's got to move you over. The Spirit has to be put in you by Him. It can't be achieved. It has to be a gift of grace. It has to be of mercy. Because only He can make you alive. Otherwise, you're going to come up with all kinds of methods like Nicodemus trying to get back in your mama's womb and try to be born again, which is only ever going to, assuming you could ever do that, would only ever put you back in Adam again. I can only ever be born of flesh and blood. That's all I can do. I didn't even really have power to do that. But of course, through procreation, that's all we can do. This is a totally different work. And it's equated to being born again because just like you had no say in being born in Adam, God's the one that chooses you to be born into Christ. He moves you over because only He can dis distribute the Spirit. Um, so what does it say in Ephesians 1, 13, 14? Anybody? This is the previous bullet point, by the way. I, I went back, but go ahead. So what is this that says to me, I am secured in column B. I am secured in the new creation. I am secured under the headship of Christ. The Holy Spirit. This is that spirit rebirth that has to take place before one is actually renewed. Before one is, is moved over. They are actually born again. So, God maintains His justice because He is just and the justifier. Christ lives a sinless life. He becomes his righteous life pays the debt that we owed. Christ is Jesus is also God, so he is both the judge and the offended party. Uh, also, Christ is functioning as a representative head over new creation. Those born under him have now the Spirit of God dwelling in them like he does. All right. So, this is how the track ends on this panel. All this is completely undeserved by us. We rejected God, but because of His great love, He sent His Son to die for us. So, if you're left here going, if you're thinking, okay, this is a work of God. The reason that I'm saved 
is because God did a work here in reviving you. And, and, and I, I, just by the questions that I get asked a lot, which is great, I love these, um, there, there's a sense at which we kind of feel like sort of helpless about our own salvation, where we're like, well, well then what, what, do I, what do I tell this person <laughs> sitting across from me? I've just told them, your birth into God's kingdom is a gift that God gives you. What, what do I tell this person? You tell them to believe. Believe. What is the evidence that one has the Spirit of God in them? Belief. The evidence it, that someone has been moved from column A to column B, from only under Adam to now under Christ, is that they believe. So what do you tell them? Believe. Belief is demonstrated in a whole... Ho- be- transferring over to column B. Being born again is demonstrated by belief, then confession of sin, then repentance of sin, then a lifetime of righteousness, of righteous living. Does it come all at once? Of course not. Does it come perfectly ever? Of course not. We continue to progress in righteousness as God, through His Spirit that He's now given us, progressively sanctifies us over time. And we never reach glorification until Christ returns or until we die. Okay? So, it's always a work that God is doing in us. Okay? But the evidence that someone has moved over is belief. So what do I tell this person? Did you hear what I just told you? Here's the gospel. Did you hear that? Do you believe it? And if they go, no. Well, they haven't been moved over. What do we need to talk about? What questions do I need to answer for you? If they say, yeah, I believe it. Congratulations, you're saved. Right? <laughs> Let's repent. Let's confess Christ as Lord. Let's go be baptized. Let's join a church. Let's live a lifetime of righteousness. Let's be discipled. Let's learn how to read the Bible. Let's follow Jesus. It's simple, right? It's, 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 she says, yeah, right. It's, but if you leave going, okay, well, well then, I, I didn't do any of that. Yeah, because salvation is not by works or else. You'd go, look what I did. It's not a result of works. It's a gift of grace and mercy. I have two questions. First was Camille, then Shannon. Go ahead. Of course! That's not... No, 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 hang on. Okay. If someone says, I believe, and they're happy... Okay, well now the things changed. <laughs> Just yeah, yeah. So the question I'm going to repeat this for the recording. Uh, the question that Camille asks is: the person says, "I believe all the things that you just said, but nothing in their life changes." I think it's really important that we emphasize this is what happens when someone believes. This is the fruit of belief. Repentance of sin. 
So let's turn from sin and let's walk this way. If you say you believe, here's the things that we should be seeing. These are the things that you should be doing. You should be wanting to do, desiring to do. And here's what I would say as the one who's sharing the gospel with you. If the, let's say this is not somebody that you just pass by on the road and they're going to Arizona and you're coming back to Alabama or something, but someone that you see all the time. This would be the time where I would make myself available to them for everything. I will pick you up and we'll go to church Sunday. I will pick you up. We'll, be go, we'll go to Wednesday night or whatever. Uh, I will come over to your house and we'll go through the book of James where we'll see you, you say you have faith. You show me your faith by your works. All right. Well, what is it that, you're, that you do that demonstrates the fact that you do believe? Um, and so like I, this is the part of discipleship. But, but here's the deal. If they say, ah, Camille, I don't want any of that kind of stuff, and they just walk off, it, it's, it, is, it is between them and God. And as hard as that is, because you, you want them, especially if there's somebody close to you, you, you want them to believe. The only thing that you can do until you see that evidence of faith is just continue to share the gospel with them every time and be very patient. Just be patient with them. Because you have no idea. They might actually genuinely believe. But their appetite for God, you know, kind of like a baby's appetite for broccoli is, is probably not super high, you know. And so it's, it's over time that they develop an appetite for, you know, better things. And so just be very patient and just continue to encourage them. But the position that I'm taking personally, as I see there's no fruit here that I can see, is I'm just going to continue to share the gospel with them and tell them what Jesus has done tell them my testimony, that kind of thing, and just continue to try to stoke the fires that were there. I'm going to go to Shannon and then James. That's okay. Go ahead, Shannon. Nebulous. Yeah. Um, Shannon, I'm going to repeat it. So Shannon said she has an issue with the word believe because she believed all these things for years, but she recognizes now that she wasn't saved. She believed these things were true, but she recognizes she wasn't saved back then because there was no evidence, there was no fruit, kind of like what Camille was pointing out. There's no fruit, there's no evidence of repentance, there's no, none of this kind of stuff. And now you see that. Um, so... There are there there is a way that we say believe, and I've used this illustration a thousand times, and you're going to go, oh, I've heard this one before. I know, so just bear with me though. Um, belief, as it's used in the Bible, or faith, even as it's used in the Bible, is the same thing as your neighbor coming over and saying your yard is on fire. If you believe, then you jump up from your couch. You run outside, you get the water hose, and you start turning it on, right? Belief that your yard is on fire is not going, awesome. I believe that fire exists. I believe that my grass exists. I believe that the two could come together and that my fire, the fire could light my grass on fire, right? I burn my yard down. That's not belief. 
But that is the way we mean belief sometimes, is we mean there is a mental assent to this kind of level of truth. It's not what the Bible's talking about. That's why what Timothy pointed out and what James, the book of James points out is true. If you believe and there's no subsequent fruit, that's not the kind of belief we're talking about, right? And that's what Paul even says is faith working through love is actual faith. You know, belief working through love, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, I think because it, 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 she's pointing out in the South and the Bible Belt, you get this sort of constant, I believe, and, and you deal with cultural Christianity all the time. Believe me, um, what I've always been taught is, is the hardest religion to actually see converted to actual Christianity. Um, but the the case is to really still still put it on them. You believe. That's fantastic. I'm so glad you believe. Where are you going to church right now? And if they say, well, I go to so-and-so, okay, who's the pastor there and what are they teaching? Um, if you ha- especially if you happen to know them and you happen to know the things that they're, like, they're, there's no fruit being produced, there's all kinds of ways that you might be able to personally push. Um, you know, but again, I think it, it's, it comes back to where, where is the evidence? And the better you know them, look, there's some times where presenting the gospel gets confrontational. You know, you, you know them really well. They're your good friend. And you say, you say you believe, but I'm really concerned about your salvation because I see this. How are those two things compatible? And that's where you start to lose friendships. I mean, honestly. And so... Sharing the gospel with some, t- some people can be, it is by nature offensive. Now, how offensive it is can be up to you too, right? And the better you know them and the, the more deeply concerned you are for their soul, it might be time to step on a toe or two, you know? You don't have to break the foot, but you can push a little hard sometimes and go, here's what I'm concerned about when you say that is you're, you're representing Christ, but you, there's no fruit. And, and that's what I'm, why I'm presenting the gospel to you. you know. But also be patient, because you never know what the Lord's doing on somebody's life. You really never know. Let's pray. Oh, James, did you have a question? Yeah. 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 This, he says, a lot of times they're not telling you the whole story. They're thinking about what they have to give up. This makes it very clear. You got two ways to live. You can choose this way or that way, but you're going to make a choice. And so there, there is no third way. There's only two. So here, here they are. And they're going to weigh those choices. So just trust that and trust the Lord's going to do a, a lot through that. So let me pray because I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be, somebody's going to murder me, I'm sure. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a time to come together and think about uh, deeply about the atonement of Christ. And uh, so we pray that as we think about this as a church over the coming years, even studying Hebrews and 
uh, all those kinds of things, that you would grow us deeply in our understanding of what you've done and uh, the atonement, the atoning work that you have accomplished for us in Christ. Um, I pray that we would, that what we understand, when we come to really understand what this gospel actually means, that a profound transformation would happen in the lives of each of us, that we would come to glorify Christ all the more because of what you have done through him. And so we, we pray that uh, he would be Lord of our lives, King of our hearts, and as we leave this place and talk with others, that he would be the first thing on our minds and the first thing on our hearts and the first thing on our mouths as we talk to people, as we invite them to church, as we share the gospel openly with them and proudly. I pray that you would help us to do that and give us the boldness to do that and allow us, Lord, to see fruit from our evangelism as we see souls saved from an eternity in hell. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.